0: Welcome to Religionish! I'm your host, Ashley Campbell. This episode is the second installment of the Religionish SCOTUS Watch. So if you've not listened to the first edition, please do go back and listen to Religion and We the People. You'll need the foundational information about the Constitution and the history of its drafting to fully appreciate the content we cover in this episode. No rush. Go listen. I'll still be here. For those of you ready to tackle new material about religion, the Constitution, and the Supreme Court, get your notebooks ready. Today we're going to be covering the idea of the separation of church and state and what it has to do with the Establishment Clause. I'll end by introducing you to the first disputes in the U.S. that really cite the religion clauses in the Constitution, but getting into detail over those cases will be saved for next time. I Don't want to overload you with too much new information. You Ready? Because it's time to get nerdy. The separation of church and state. Many of you have probably heard that phrase before. I've definitely had lots of people cite it to me when I talk about what I do read my research on with regards to religion and politics. But there's two ways we can think about the phrase separation of church and state. We can think about separation in terms of institutions. The church and the state are referring to institutions of religion and government. The two institutions do not come together. But then we also need to think about the concept of entanglement between church and state. And here is more where I tend to say that Um, religion and politics are ideologies, they're belief systems, they're not institutions. But we also have to think about how institutions do influence each other. So we have the separation of institutions, but we also have entanglement. We have the entanglement of influence, of ideologies, of institutions, and then the mixing together of belief systems, because we can't necessarily compartmentalize our politics and our beliefs away from each other. So keep these two ideas in mind while we talk today. Separation versus entanglement. Now, the founders uh, were really influenced by John Locke. He was an Enlightenment um, philosopher about politics and government. And in 1689, he wrote a letter concerning toleration. Now, this letter um, is often um, cited as being what has influenced the founders' wording and understanding about religious freedom. So John Locke, in a letter concerning toleration, outlines how government should only deal with the civil and not with men's souls. He writes, These things being thus explained, it is e- easy to understand to what end the legislative power ought to be directed and by what measures regulated. And that is the temporal good and outward prosperity of the society, which is the reason of men's entering into society and the only thing they seek and aim at in it. Okay, what did that mean? Basically, Locke is saying government should only deal with the temporal world and the prosperity of society, that when men enter into the social contract, they're entering in to an agreement, a social agreement, that's only concerned about living prosperously and peacefully on earth. Locke continues and writes, And it is also evident what liberty remains to men in reference to their eternal salvation, and that is that everyone should do what he in his conscience is persuaded to be acceptable to the Almighty, on whose good pleasure and acceptance depends their eternal happiness. For obedience is due in the first place to God, and afterwards to the laws. So here we have this beginning idea of um, freedom of conscience. And so you should not be forced to practice any particular type of religion, or be told to believe in a certain way. That the order of law and government is separate from salvation and men's souls. So understanding how John Locke influences the founders is great and all, but we also really need to do the work of looking at Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the two key advocates for the religion clauses. But first, a rewind. To fully understand what the separation of church and state means, we should look at examples of unified establishments. And what do I mean by that? A unified establishment is when the church and state are actually cooperative and working together. So the legal establishment of religion is usually what I mean by the idea of unified establishments. And the most common example that the founders would have been engaging with is the Church of England in the UK. So let's remember what I'm about to say. We're sitting in the 1700s, you know, um, the 1600s. We had the Puritans coming over um, with their claim to seeking religious liberty. So, in the UK, the Church of England is a national church. It has governmental control over doctrine and personnel. So, um, it's, it, back then, the, the monarch and parliament, mainly the monarch, had influence over what um, church doctrine was and over who different bishops and priests were. There was also the suppression of other faiths. If you want a really clear example of this, following Henry VIII, um, you have the reign of his two daughters, Mary I and Elizabeth I. And these two queens um, had differing views on religion. And if you know the legend of of Bloody Mary, that would be Queen Mary I of England. And it was because she did a, a lot to really suppress Protestantism and to bring Catholicism back to England. And then when Elizabeth became queen, she was a Protestant. So the persecution of Catholics wasn't as great as it was um, prior, but there was still suppression of any other tradition than the former Protestantism that Queen Elizabeth followed. Also, you have... um, the church having political influence through the way in which the government is run. And so this means that um, church leaders are talking about who should be holding what positions or um, is an alliance with this country a good idea or not. So you definitely have the government influencing the religion and the religion influencing the government. And then... Um, This was definitely more common um, in the 1600s, still sometimes in the 1700s, but there was compelled attendance and support, which means that it doesn't matter if you were an adherent to the Church of England and you were a Protestant and identified as a believer, you were still compelled to attend religious services and you were required to, to support the church, whether that was monetarily, ideologically, et cetera, et cetera. So in the colonies... The concept of establishment varied. The southern colonies tended to kind of more reflect the British establishment with the Church of England. And then New England had a bit of a different model. So in Massachusetts, the relationship between religion and government was more theologically grounded and it was based on this idea of creating a Christian commonwealth that pursued divine works. Historical establishment is not necessarily the point of this episode. But I do want to highlight what we are thinking about when we're thinking about disestablishment and how that relates to the forms of religious establishment that the founders were experiencing and had been used to. But if you are interested in the topic of religious establishment in the colonies, especially with regards to New England, I'll post a a few links in the show notes. The first separation of church and state comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. He wrote, quote, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So what is Jefferson saying? Well, first off, he's saying to the Danbury Baptist Association that he agrees with them that religion is a matter between the person and God. Whoever you believe in, whatever your deity is, that is your business it's not the business of government and then he can continues to kind of laud and congratulate the american people and the the writers of the bill of rights who established the religion clauses and thomas jefferson is is saying that because of the religion clauses the institution of the church cannot influence the state has no say over the state the church cannot Control parts of the state, and similarly, the state cannot control the church. So there's a wall of separation. Now, whether this is like a brick wall, a fence, that gets a little bit more um, fluid, I guess you could say, because let's think back. I introduced us at the beginning of this episode to the ideas of separation versus entanglement. Yes, there is a separation of institutions, and it's not. Uh, a form of control between church and state like there has been, like the founders were used to in England, but it's not a brick wall. It's not completely separated. You do have ways in which the church religion and the state and religion and government, however you want to phrase it, are, are influencing each other, are having an impact, but it's not a legally approved legally guaranteed control of one over the other. So now that we've read that letter from Jefferson and that excerpt from the letter, it's no surprise that Jefferson and his friend James Madison really led the way in ending the establishment of religion in Virginia. Jefferson and Madison are both residents of Virginia. And it's actually the disestablishment of religion in Virginia that then influences the writing of the First Amendment's religion clauses. It's also important to know that it was James Madison who initially drafted the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. Of course, Madison alone did not construct the Bill of Rights. Various other members of the first U.S. Congress contributed to the Bill of Rights language, and they pulled input from the suggestions made by ratification committees of the Constitution in 1788. So what does that all mean? So while the Constitution was getting ratified in 1788, the different states... um, put forth their suggestions, their comments, their views about the Constitution. And in some of these uh, committees' statements, they had said that they wanted something like the Bill of Rights to be included. But it wasn't done at that time. As we know from Episode 1, it was done a little bit later. So we had various states who were interested in various members of the first Congress who wanted to create a Bill of Rights. Now, there is a Federalist-Anti-Federalist debate that also happened with the Bill of Rights, but I don't want to get into that because that just complicates matters in a way that's unnecessary right now. So, in sum, the Establishment Clause does not exactly construct a wall of separation, as many think. The Establishment Clause does prevent the legal alignment of one or more religious traditions with the government as an official state faith. And it prevents the government or a particular religion from compelling support or practice for that faith. However, this establishment does not actually draw a firm boundary, like I was saying. It's not a brick wall. And religion and government do become entangled. So, I often shorten this explanation to religious institutions and the government cannot become conjoined. Religion and politics are both belief systems that regularly interact become entangled regarding organizational influence, and cannot be separated because humans cannot compartmentalize foundational worldviews. Yes, I may have corrected somebody randomly in an elevator one time that was quoting the concept of a separation of church and state when making a comment about the Christian right, and I definitely... told them that the separation of institutions is not the same thing as the separation of belief systems, and then I got off on the wrong floor because I knew that I was no longer welcome in that elevator. The first challenge to the religion clauses comes in the mid-1800s over male Yes, you heard me correctly. The first debate about religion clauses in the Bill of Rights is over mail. In 1810, the federal government required the postal service to be open for at least an hour on Sunday. Now, you have to remember, there are very, very adamant Christians at this time. Not that there aren't still, but it was a different time. So, various advocates for what we know as Sunday laws, or the prohibiting of certain acts and services on the Christian Sabbath, were appalled that the postal service would be open on a Sunday and that the government mandated it. So, during the 19th century in the U.S., the majority of commerce and other businesses were actually closed on Sunday. So, the opening of the postal service was viewed as some was viewed by some as a violation of the Sabbath. But the Postal Service also served as a community location that people would go to after church because it was one of the few places that was actually open. But by the 1820s, Sunday law advocates began using the argument that the Sunday Postal Service violated the free exercise of the postman's religion. So here you can see they're not just applying um, their argument to cultural precepts of, well, we can't violate the Christian Sabbath, it's just everything else is closed, so why should the Postal Service be clo- be open? Um, Sunday law advocates are now appealing to the religion clause that cites free exercise and saying that you ha- can't have the Postal Service open and running because then how can the postman be celebrating and exercising their religion? So there wasn't an actual Supreme Court case over the U.S. Postal Service, but eventually Sunday service stopped Whether it was a change in religious opinions or due to technology because of the telegram and then eventually the phone, the Postal Service was closed on Sundays in 1910 and remained so for over a century. I don't know about you, but I definitely grew up not getting mail on Sunday and knowing that you can't go to the post office on a Sunday. But that's kind of recently changed, and there's an article I have posted in the show notes about a agreement between amazon and the u.s postal service so i highly recommend you check that out but the first major supreme court cases regarding the religious clauses came after the civil war so these cases addressed questions of labor and polygamy are you intrigued if so stay tuned for the third episode of religionish scotus watch when i take you into some of the first landmark cases that address religion and question whether the Establishment Clause permits religious accommodation. We're going to begin in the 1800s looking at three cases, which are two about polygamy and one about labor. From there, we'll move thematically, examining cases addressing education, taxes and corporations, public prayer, free speech, religious discrimination, and the meaning of religion and its authenticity. There's a lot to cover, and I promise I'll give it to you in small doses. I do want to know what topic you want to hear about first, whether it's education, religious discrimination, taxes and corporations, you tell me. So I'm going to post a poll on Twitter and Facebook, so please go vote and you can find the show on Twitter at religionish, that's religion with I-S-H at the end, and on Facebook at Religionish Podcast. I'll also post links in the show notes. So please tell me which theme about Supreme Court cases regarding religion. You want to hear about first. All right, book corner. So I just finished reading Dead Wake by Eric Larson. If you don't know any of Eric Larson's work, I highly recommend you check him out. He's a fantastic author that writes um historical narrative work. So he uses a lot of archives and primary sources to craft together a story that reads like um, a fiction book, but it's actually completely based in um, archival work of like a historian quality level. It's amazing. His style of writing is wonderful. The work and the detail he puts into his his writing is amazing. Um, Dead Week is about um, the Lusitania. So if you don't know what the Lusitania is, it was a boat in um, the early 1900s. That was sunk by a German submarine and was one of the leading reasons or one of the contributing factors, I guess I should say, to the U.S. entering World War I. So I highly, highly recommend checking out Dead Wake by Eric Larson or any of his other books, actually. I'm also really, really excited um, for a new book that just came out. If you follow religionish on Instagram, you saw me kind of unbox the book and like kind of get really excited about it. It's by Jack Jenkins, who is a reporter for religion news service. And the book is entitled American prophets. And it's all about, um, progressive politics and the religious left. And I'm really excited to start reading it and, um, to eventually have Jack come on the show. So if you want the full title of Jack's book, it's American Prophets: The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics in the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. I'm super excited. Um I am not excited though to trudge back through uh, Rousseau's Social Contract, which is I have to read for part of my dissertation. And I'm not going to lie, I like, you know, Enlightenment philosophers about politics are all great and everything and important, but the writing is so painful to read. But there's also books on religion and populism to be read for my work, so I can kind of avoid the social contract for another week. Yay! You're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. So, recently in a package that um, was ordered from eBay, there was a $1 million fake bill, and it has Benjamin Franklin on it, and it's Definitely a marketing ploy. But um, on the back, it says, In God We Trust, which is on our money. But then it has an entire like long paragraph written. And this is how it begins. Here's the million-dollar question. Will you go to heaven when you die? And then it continues to talk about sinners and Jesus and things like that. And it ends with a website called livingwaters.com. On the front, there is something that says Seen by Millions and the website FullyFreeFilms.com. FullyFreeFilms.com reroutes to LivingWaters.com. And I took a visit to that website, and it is definitely a um, Christian evangelical media company organization. Uh, I actually haven't checked to see if there are 501... Yeah, no, I think they are a corporation. I haven't fully looked into it yet. This was kind of like, like with most religion nerd moments, they're kind of like a one-off something I see, and then I kind of talk about it, and I'll look more into it later. But um, it's definitely a missionary service with a location in Southern California, and it has... It produces movies with um, titles such as Evolution versus God and The Atheist Delusion. There's also TV shows, and the TV show is called Way of the Master. So I'm definitely going to be doing some more research about this organization um, and kind of uh, maybe do an entire episode about it because. There are lots of these types of media, religion, um, organizations that produce things and, um, really trying to, uh, use media as a way to evangelize. And there's an entire other episode to be done about the history of, um, evangelizing and the use of media in the United States by Christians. Um, but right now just wanted to tell you about this, um, promotional million dollar bill that i got in a package that i ordered um and i will post photos of the front and the back of it and you can read the entire paragraph if you're interested and um hopefully i'll be doing some more research into living waters and get you another episode about it Thanks for listening to Religionish, your nerdy podcast about how religion impacts society. If you enjoy this show, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Religionish. This podcast is a solo project of love by me, Ashley Campbell. So your reviews really do help the show reach more people. You can find this episode's show notes at religionish.com. And you can reach out to Religionish on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Religionish Podcast. You can also reach us by email at religionishpodcast at gmail.com. The show music was performed by Joe Nicola and Dan Paulhammer. Have a great weekend, religion nerds.